everyone. My name is Lauren Goldston, and I'm here with Joshua Yama to introduce our first episode for the podcast series, Class in Session, Economic Inequality in Higher Education. In the first episode of this podcast series, we will be introducing some background in order to understand the relationship between unequal economic backgrounds and education. To do so, we have guests, Miss Jessica Bonham, a high school English teacher who has experience with Teach for America in Louisiana, as well as with independent schools in Atlanta and Arkansas. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, we have our guest today, Jessica Bonham, joining us here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about your background and what you've done within the education sector? Sure. Um, I've been a teacher now for 16 years, I think. Um, I started in 2002, right after I graduated from college, um, and I joined Teach for America. Um, and I was sent to South Louisiana, uh, a little town called Opelousas, uh, to teach 11th and 12th grade English there. Uh, it was the year after Hurricane Katrina. So Louisiana was, you know, in a bit of a, a bit of, a bit of chaos. Um, I fulfilled my two year Teach for America commitment there. And then I decided to stay for four more. So I spent six years, um, in, Opelousas. Um, and then I switched over to uh, independent schools and moved to Atlanta and taught at Whitfield Academy in Atlanta. Um, I taught there for seven years and now I'm in my second year um, at a, a startup school in Bentonville, Arkansas um, called Thaden School. Awesome. Um, what grades did you teach within like Teacher America and also that school in Atlanta? Um, I taught my first year of Teach for America. I taught all 11th grade, which was American lit. And then after that, I moved into teaching 11th and 12th grade, which was American and British lit. Um, in Atlanta, I taught oh, so many different classes, but always kind of some combination of 10th, 11th and 12th grade, um, American lit, British lit, um, AP lit, AP Lang, creative writing, um, just a bunch of different things. Very cool. Okay. So we're going to dive into our substantive questions, if that's all right with you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you a few and then Josh will take over. Um, so our first question is, how would you say that the college preparation differed between the schools that you've worked at? When you say college preparation, do you mean the students and how well prepared they were for college? Or do you mean um, the sort of college counseling, like getting students prepared to apply to college? The resources. So like college counseling and things of that nature. Yeah, the resources were dramatically different mm -hmm. um, in Opelousas, um There were probably... I don't know, 400 kids in a graduating class, let's say. Um, and there was only um, one counselor in the school, right? and she was a trained guidance counselor. Um, but she was also given the responsibility of being the college counselor, even though she had no training, no background, really didn't know what that meant. And of course, she was also, I mean, she was the guidance counselor for the entire school, grades 9 through 12. Um, so honestly, the college counseling program was basically non-existent. There, there really wasn't one. Um, all she did 
because of course she was incredibly busy, not because she didn't care, not because, but because she was very busy and because she had no training. Um, I mean, she set up the kids taking the PSAT in their junior year. Um, and if kids came to her with questions about college applications, she would do her best to answer them. Um, but that was really the extent of the college counseling program. Um, in Atlanta, graduating classes were you know, maybe around 60, 70 students. Um, and there were three employees of the college counseling office. Um, I believe two were part-time. So two full-time employees, if, you know, if you're going to uh, average it out. Um, and they, I mean, they started programming in ninth, in 10th grade, they would have boot camps, um, in the summer, uh, they would have individual meetings with all students several times a year. Their doors were always opening. College counseling was just, it was their focus. It was what they were trained for. Um, we had representatives come in from colleges all over the country to speak with students, meet with students. Nothing like that um, existed in Louisiana, not even for the colleges that were, you know, right next door. Wow, that's very interesting. Can you speak at all to the students uh, like intellectual preparation in terms of like their home life, how that differed um, and the preparation that came as a result of that? Yeah, um, that's a really complicated question, as I'm sure uh, I'm sure you know from your mm -hmm. course. Um, there are so many factors that go mm -hmm. into educational achievement and whatever we call college preparation. You know, it's such a loaded term in many yeah. ways. Um, the students at both schools, the average student had very different backgrounds. Um, you know, Opelousas High School um, was a school where most of the students were young men and women of color. Um, and they came from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, a year or two before I started um, in Opelousas, Forbes magazine called um, St. Landry Parish, which is the county that Opelousas is located in, um, it named it the poorest county in the poorest state in the country. Um, so, I mean, it was pretty extreme. Um, the um, just the the things that my students were were fighting against, um, just the cycles of poverty um, that impacted them. Um, alternatively, in Atlanta, um, I taught you know students who came from very privileged backgrounds for the most part, um, and had you know all the benefits of a stable home life. Um, uh, they never wondered where a meal was coming from. Uh, they, I, you know, yeah. um, it, it was just hugely different. Um, most of them had never, you know, had to think about their race. Um, they, they had, you know, summer enrichment programs coming at them from everywhere. They were able to invest in, you know, all these things. Um, you know, my students in Opelousas, there was also a, a pretty high teen pregnancy rate. Um, so many of my, you know, young women would um, would have to take six weeks off for maternity leave. And when they came back, I had a, you know, a box of children's books that, in the back wow. of the room. Um, and I would give them, you know, they got to pick a couple mm -hmm. children's books. And for some of them, those were the only books that their children were going to get. Um, 
So just from a resources standpoint, um, just the difference was mm-hmm. was vast. Um, and it certainly impacted the skills that they had academically. But I mean, intellectually, once you can look past all that, you could see that the kids in Opelousas had the same capability, the same, you know, I would often in Atlanta, I would look at kids and I would say, oh, you are just like this student that I had in Opelousas, but you have more resources, more of a safety net. You have people who are saying, no, it's not okay that you don't do your homework. No, it's not. Um, So yeah, the the disparity between the two environments um, was a real wake up call to me in, in terms of how much external factors matter in whatever we deem as intelligence or college preparation. Um, Yeah, just a complicated question. There's a phenomenon we learned about called summer melt. Uh, If you're familiar, it's when students unenroll over the summer and they don't come back the next year and it disproportionately affects low income students. So we're just wondering if you've seen this all in your at all in your experience. I would imagine that I have. Um, It it was hard to say Mm -hmm. one thing about working with, you know, um, economically disadvantaged students is and this is horrible, but sometimes you just don't know what's happened to them. Um, they often don't have the same address two years in a row. So, I mean, yes, students would just disappear and we would have no idea why and no ability to contact them. Because, of course, you, you try, um, but their phone numbers would change constantly. Their addresses would change. So we would have students and we wouldn't know, like, are they just not in school or did they move to a different district and they're going to school someplace else? Um, so I would imagine I've seen it, but I, I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, So our next question is, what is your understanding of the college matriculation rates of low-income students? Oh, that it is very low. Yeah. (laughs) That it is very, very, very low. What common stresses are experienced within low-income students throughout the college uh, application process? I think that one of the one of the big ones is uncertainty. Um, for many of them, no one in their family has ever gone through the college application process. Um, and you you both know because you've gone through it. It's an intense process, um, and you have a lot of questions. Um, you know, what do I put for this box? What does this mean? What does that mean? Wait, they need. They, what, are, what are these economic documents that they need? Um, and for many of them, I mean, you can just imagine looking at that and feeling like it's so overwhelming that without anyone to help support you through it, you just give up. Um, so I think that that, that feeling of over, being overwhelmed is a huge one. Um, I also think that uh, technology can be a a pretty big stressor or barrier. Um, obviously, you know these applications are committed are, are completed online, um, and many low income students don't have um, steady 
internet access. They might not have uh, access to a computer all the time. Uh, so that can be a big barrier and a big stressor. Um, and then thirdly, um, I think the testing is, is a big stressor. Um, again, partially logistically, like just figuring out, you know, how to sign up for the test and how to make sure they use their fee waiver. Um, but then they don't get as many fee waiver, like, you know, as they can't take the test as often as um, privileged students can. Um, and they don't get the kind of um, test prep that many students um, from more advantaged backgrounds um, invest in. So I think that the testing can be um, a really big psychological barrier because they'll get their PSAT scores back junior year because they take the PSAT for free. Um, and, and those scores are very, very low usually um, because they've never had any test prep for many of them. It's the, it's the first, um, well, it's not the first standardized test because they've taken, you know, end of course tests through um, No Child Left Behind. Um, but those are very different. So it's the first that kind of standardized test. And those scores are very low. And many of them just go, <laughs> I don't know what to do about this. Um, and they throw up their hands and they're done. Broadly speaking, um, how are the impacts of economic inequality shown in secondary education in high school? That is a broadly speaking question. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give you four categories. I could probably give you 12, but I'll, I'll give you four. Okay. Um, I mean, one is obviously resources and resources play out in a lot of different ways. Um, technology resources, um, for example, and this is very low tech, but in Opelousas, um, I was limited to 100 copies per month and I taught 150 students. So I, I couldn't even give each of my students one piece of paper per month. Um, and they certainly didn't have computers. So, you know, I couldn't, what do you do with that? Um, as opposed to, of course, in Atlanta, unlimited copies, all the kids have laptops, you know, a one-to-one -one program. Um, so just technology. Um, resources also play out in um, professional development for teachers. Um, at many independent schools, like in Atlanta, you know, you, you have a budget of several thousand dollars per teacher, um, and you can, um, and teachers can go pursue professional development so that they can better, um, better teach their students. Um, and nothing like that is available um, in many schools located in low-income communities. So resources is definitely one call, one category. Um, I think the college preparation process, which we've already talked about, is a huge one um, as well. Um, a third one, um, you definitely see a difference in parental involvement. Um, and again, this isn't because of desire, which is how some um, you know, media outlets will paint it. They'll, they'll say something terrible, like, you know, oh, parents of low income kids just don't want to be involved. That is completely untrue. I have never met a parent who doesn't want to be involved in their child's education, who doesn't care, um, 
100% about their kids' educational achievement. Um, but parents from low-income communities, many of them feel unwelcome um, at schools or they don't know how to navigate um, the school environment. Um, they feel um, like they you know, some of them never graduated high school. They feel like they can't help their kids once they get to 11th and 12th grade, which is what I taught. Um, and then there's just the uh, the problem of communication. Phone numbers are out of date. They change. Addresses change. Um, they don't have email addresses in some case um, or access to computers to check their email. Um, so it's, it's just very hard um, parental involvement. Um, and then the last category that I'll bring up is just, just the concept of a, a, a safety net. Um, low income students don't have one. High income students do. Um, and that plays out, you know, academically. Um, if a high income student needs something, their parents are going to get it for them. Um, it also plays out in other things. Like I would see, um, you know, my students in Opelousas, um, you know, get get picked up by the police for maybe possession of, uh, of you know, of marijuana or something. Um, and they would be out of school for weeks um, dealing with that. Um, they might even be imprisoned um, for it. Uh, if that happens to a high income kid, their parents are going to work the system and it's not going to impact them at all. Um, they would actually just like do a couple hours of community service at the school. Um, so the school helped, you know, grease the wheels um, in some ways. Um, so those are just four areas, but they're the four that come to mind. High school, as one would expect, uh, is an incubator for developing social and cultural capital. And so how is that capital achieved by students? Um, in many ways. And of course, it's easier um, for um, students at schools like the ones that I taught at in Atlanta to achieve that capital. Um, you know, schools are really important places where students do start to develop their um, their networks, right? Their cultural capital. Um, and at a school like the one I taught at in Atlanta, um, there are you know parents who are great purveyors of cultural capital. Parents who help um, their kids' friends get jobs, make connections. Um, they might say, oh, you want to go to that college? I know someone who went to that college. Let me give you their number and then you can, and the network develops. Um, teachers can provide um, that capital as well. Um, and, you know, the teachers um, who teach at that kind of independent school often have more connections than the amazing, awesome, excellent teachers who teach at the public schools. They're amazing. They're awesome. They're excellent. Um, 
but they often just don't have the kind of like national um, reach and connections. They're often from that community um, and they can't really um, provide uh, connections outside of it. Um, And even things like um, um, offering or helping students see opportunities outside of school, like summer programs and things like that. Um, You know, I remember once in Opelousas, um, I was able to uh, help a student get a a full scholarship to a summer program at um, a New England boarding school. And that program like opened, just opened her world. and that's the kind of experience that students at a school like the one I taught at in Opelousas very, very rarely have. Whereas students at a school like the one I taught at in Atlanta, they have them all the time um, and they they don't even think about it. Given your experience uh, teaching in high school, is it possible that core curriculum in high school can be operative of economic inequality within the education system? And if so, how and what can be done to change such academic content? I mean, I definitely think that the um, the actual curriculum can be operative of inequality. Um, you know, as an English teacher, um, I certainly see that in reading lists, let's say, um, the kinds of books um, that are often privileged um, in, you know, the Common Core curriculum um, or in textbooks. Um, you know, they tend to be sort of your white male classics. Um, I think that that is is changing, right? There's a movement to change that. Um, but I would still say that that's sort of, you know, the the baseline um, and um, you know additions and changes are being made to that baseline but like the baseline still exists you know it's still the core um, as opposed to a more structural change um, that would that would make that no longer the core um, and that does have an impact on students you know we know from research that uh, students respond better to texts. They engage more with texts um, when they see themselves represented in it. Um, And when they see, you know, uh, when they see those texts grappling with the uh, real situations that they find themselves in, um, you know, the scarlet letter, to give one example, um, it, it, it doesn't really grapple with those things. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that, again, just speaking as an English teacher, that things like reading lists um, can, can reinforce um, inequality. Uh, you know, what uh, is the most recent uh, education policy, uh, you know, to reform public education, namely, uh, that stands out to you most? And, you know, what are your thoughts on this policy? Um, That's that's an interesting question for me as now an independent school teacher, and I've been in independent schools now for nine years, um, so I'm less affected by um, 
by policy. Um, so I feel like right now all of my answers um, might be more, you know, theoretical um, because I'm not actually, you know, on the ground in a public school seeing how things actually affect students there. Um, you know, certainly going back to um, to when I was in a public school, we were still um, uh, we were still dealing with um, the effects of, you know, no child left behind and the standardized testing um, that it wrought um, and the way that, um, you know, I would say negatively um, impacted teachers' abilities to to respond to their classes' needs um, and to respond to their classes' racial, ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, you know, if, if I'm picking something more, you know, more recent, um, even though No Child Left Behind policies still um, certainly do um, impact education now, um, I might honestly pick something. And again, this is um, this is this doesn't impact me at all as a teacher. Um, but, you know, in New York City, um, you know, New York City public schools are so interesting um, because even though they're public schools, there's like a lottery system um, and uh, and it actually like the like kids basically have to apply to their public middle schools, um, which has created all kinds of issues surrounding, um, you know, um, segregation, um, certain schools becoming the schools for, you know, wealthy kids and just lots of issues there. Um, but they, they recently, um, within the past few years have been changing the application process to try to make the schools more integrated, um, and less separated by, um, socioeconomic, um, status. I don't know how that's playing out. Um, but I just always think that, um, that New York city public schools are very, very interesting ones, but again, doesn't affect me at all. Just like common core doesn't affect me and, and all these things like they don't affect me. So I don't, I don't really know if I'm the best person to ask, um, for a recent policy. Thank you. I believe that's all of the questions we have for today, but I really appreciate all of your input. Today, in our first episode on navigating academic resources, Lauren and I discussed with Ms. Bonham the educational experiences of high school students who come from economically disadvantaged households. The important takeaways from our discussion is that the lack of resources holds students back from gaining opportunities, being that high school is supposed to be an incubator for developing social and cultural capital. And following that, low-income students do not have a safety net, whereas higher-income students do. And the core curriculum in education, namely in public education, is operative, a driving force of economic inequality. As for our next episode, Olivia 
and Graciela will be discussing the experiences of Wake Forest students and how they are shaped by their socioeconomic status. Thank you for tuning in today, folks. Session is a podcast project for Politics 213, Economic Inequality and American Politics at Wake Forest University. It is produced by Olivia Field, Lauren Goldston, Ben Murphy, Olivia Nankioliar, Graciela Zarat Rolone, and Joshua Yama. You can listen to more of our episodes on Spotify, as well as find our Instagram at classinsession underscore podcast. The music for this episode was accessed via Creative Commons. The intro and outro music is by D. Yan Ki. The song is Hold On from the album Go Down Moses. The transition music is from the artist Ketza. The song is Hotbox from the album One of One.